I want to start by distinguishing collective agency from collective action. As I use the term, a collective action is just an event with two or more agents. So if some commuters all pile into an elevator, causing it by virtue of their combined weight to stop between floors, then the commuters broke the elevator. Their breaking the elevator was, by this definition, a collective action, just because it's an event with two or more agents. But of course, this is a collective action that doesn't involve an exercise of collective agency. To see that, we might contrast it with a case that plausibly does. So you might suppose that there's a master criminal who's stealing a diamond, and to facilitate her escape, she has her accomplices pose as commuters, pile into the elevator, causing it to stop between floors, so that she can then escape more easily. So this would be a case where, in the ordinary way of things, the criminal accomplices do exercise collective agency. Or to take another case, we might imagine two friends painting a bridge red, which in the ordinary way of things would involve exercising collective agency. Whereas by contrast, if one dark and stormy night, two strangers each quite independently set out to paint that bridge red, but started at each opposite ends, and because of the darkness of the night and the wind were unaware of each other until they met in the middle, then they would have performed a collective action, they would have painted the bridge red, sure enough, but they would not in doing so have exercised collective agency. After all, they were completely unaware of each other until they met in the middle at the end. So these and other contrasts invite the question, what distinguishes collective agency from exercises of parallel but merely individual agency? That's the question I want to focus on today because it, because the notion of collective agency is linked to a tangle of philosophical and scientific questions. So developmentally we want to know when are children first capable of exercising collective agency? What does its exercise presuppose of them? And what consequences might its exercise have for them? Does it play some role in facilitating the emergence of social cognition, for example? Psychologically we want to know what mechanisms make exercising collective agency possible? Phenomenologically, we want some characterization of anything that's special to experiences associated with action when one is exercising collective agency. Metaphysically, we want to know whether the existence of exercises of collective agency requires that there are special kinds of agent in the world, or special kinds of state, or special kinds of subject. And normatively, we want to know what kind of commitments are associated with collective agency, if any, and how those commitments are entered into. So for investigating all of those questions, it might be useful to have, as in the background, a way of distinguishing systematically between exercises of collective agency and exercises of parallel but merely individual agency. And that's why I think this is a kind of question that's worth pursuing. Now, when, you, when you're faced with that question, you think, well, it can't really take more than five minutes 
to sort out that question. So much of the talk is about persuading you that this is an interestingly difficult question. The first thing to note is that we can't, we can't distinguish these two just by appeal to coordination, because agents who exercise parallel but merely individual agency often need to coordinate their actions as well. Those commuters wouldn't all fit into the lift unless they were some way, in some ways coordinated. Likewise, common effects can be had in cases where collective agency does not feature. These kinds of considerations lead almost everybody who's thought about this question, how to distinguish collective agency from parallel but merely individual agency, these kind of questions lead people to think what we need is to appeal to a notion of collective intention. And here the idea is that collective intention stands to an exercise of collective agency, just as an ordinary intention stands to an exercise of ordinary individual agency. So we introduce something special that, that will help us, some special kind of state or structure of states or commitments that will help us to understand what collective agency is. But just here we need to be careful. The first thing to note is that collective intention is a technical term. On any plausible account of collective intention, collective intentions are neither things that are had collectively nor intentions. So thank you philosophers for that useful piece of terminology. This is, this is a kind of technical term. Our anchor in understanding it is that we want something that will help us, that will shed light on the notion of collective agency. So how should we understand it? Well, a first very natural, hopeful thought is that we can think of our having a collective intention as just a matter of us each having an intention in favour of a collective action. More carefully, if we are the two friends painting the bridge red, we might think that what has to happen for us to have a collective intention is just this, that I intend that we, you and I, paint the bridge red, and you intend the same thing. But we can see that that initial hopeful thought won't work by adapting an example from Margaret Gilbert and Michael Bretman. So we can contrast two friends walking together in the ordinary way, which is a paradigm example of where collective agency might be exercised, with two gangsters walking together like this. The first gangster pulls out the gun and points it at the head of the second gangster and says, let's walk. And meanwhile, the second gangster simultaneously does the same thing to the first. This is walking together in the Tarantino sense, not plausibly an exercise of collective agency because of the way that coercion is involved. But of course, it does involve each gangster intending that they, the two gangsters, walk together. So we do have here an intention in favour of the collective action. That tells us that whatever collective intention is, it can't just amount to each of the agents involved having an intention in favour of the collective action. You can probably see the next move coming. The leading, most influential and best defended account of collective intention, Michael Bratman's, he calls it shared intention, but I'm using collective and shared as synonyms. The leading best account merely takes this step. Instead of having an intention just in favour of the collective action, we also have to have an intention concerning each other's intentions in favour of the collective action. 
So the idea is just to move one step up the hierarchy. It's true that for us to have a collective intention, we need to each intend that we, you and I, paint the bridge red, but we also have to intend that we paint the bridge red because of and in accordance with our intentions that we paint the bridge red. So Bretman suggests that it's sufficient for us to have a collective intention that we paint the bridge red, for us each to intend that we paint the bridge red, for us each to intend that we paint the bridge red in accordance with and because of these intentions, where all of this is common knowledge between us. I want to suggest that this second way of trying to characterize collective intention also won't work. It's going to take me a tiny bit longer to do that, um, but the showing that it's wrong will have useful consequences, positive consequences, later on. It's important for my purposes to note, and also for Bratman's purposes, to note that the thing that we intend, when we intend that we, you and I, paint the bridge, is neutral with respect to collective agency. This must be the the thing that we the thing that we intend must be some, an act type which doesn't necessarily involve collective agency. You can see what that must be. The initial challenge was to say something about how collective agency is distinct from parallel but merely individual agency. Then the thought was we can do that by appeal to collective intention. But if now in describing collective intention we talk about contents whose intentions presuppose collective agency, we've moved in a circle that is too narrow, even by the standards of philosophers, to be terribly informative. What we need then is to think of these as act types which are neutral with respect to collective agency. But this is not a very obscure idea. You and I, standing in a train, which is very crowded, might notice that two people ahead of us are blocking the aisle. You say to me, those two people are blocking the aisle. And I say to you, I know, let's do that too. Now we may not know whether those two people in blocking the aisle are exercising collective agency or not. If we don't know whether they're exercising collective agency or not, the referent of our demonstrative that, when I say let's do that too, must be to an act type which is neutral with respect to collective agency. So there's nothing at all wrong with the assumption here that we can have intentions to perform collective actions where the intentions, we can specify the content of the intention without already appealing to collective agency. I've emphasized this point because it's the key to understanding something else that matters, namely that one of us can unilaterally intend that we do something. Unilaterally meaning I can intend that we do something irrespective of whether or not you intend it. So for example, let's suppose now that you are still in the aisle of the train, firmly rooted to this spot. You are 100% committed to standing where you're standing now. I also know that it's possible for me to come and stand beside you, and that if I do that, you and I will be blocking the aisle. That being the case, I can intend unilaterally that we, you and I, block the aisle. So for me to have a, an intention in favor of a collective action involving you, doesn't necessarily involve you having a symmetric intention. This is the key to understanding the possibility of unshared intention. So here I want to introduce the notion of unshared intention, not as a serious contribution to the literature, but just to get you to see what must be wrong with Bratman's attempt to characterize 
collective intention, with the idea that we can characterize collective intention by going up a hierarchy and thinking about intentions about intentions. So for us to have an unshared intention, we have to meet conditions which are just like those for us to have a collective intention, except for that the unshared intention involves two distinct activities. It involves, for example, us blocking the aisle and us being both upright, or two other distinct activities. It's easier to see what's going on with collective, uh, with unshared intention, if I give you an example. So this is an example involving an unshared intention. Here's Aisha and Ahmed, who are in the process of moving a ball around a table. Aisha can move the, can tilt the table along one axis. Ahmed can tilt the table on a perpendicular axis. At the start of this, Aisha is given an objective, and Ahmed is also given an objective. Neither cares about the other either way. Whether the other succeeds or fails is immaterial to them at the outset. As it turns out, Aisha's objective is to make the ball hit that blue square, whereas Ahmed's objective is to make the ball hit, sorry, red square, whereas Ahmed's objective is to make the ball hit the cross. Aisha reasons like this. Given what Ahmed intends, if I perform this sequence of actions, he will perform that sequence of actions. And our performing this sequence of actions will have the upshot that the ball hits the square. That being the case, Aisha can intend that they, Aisha and Ahmed, make the ball hit the red square. And she can intend that she does this because of, and in accordance with, Ahmed's intention, because things are symmetric, that the ball hit the blue cross. And all of this might be common knowledge between them. So this is a case where I think it's possible for two agents to have an unshared intention. It's of course a highly contrived case. I've just tried to find a case that makes it easiest to see what's going on here. But there are plenty of mundane cases as well. These agents can have an unshared intention and they can act on that unshared intention rationally without any kind of ignorance and achieve their objectives. I take it to be fairly straightforward that in acting on the unshared intention they're not exercising collective agency because each sees the other's actions only as opportunities to exploit or constraints to work around. Now I don't think there's anything wrong with the idea that sometimes in exercising collective agency we think of each other's actions as opportunities or constraints. The thing here is that for Aisha, Ahmed's actions are merely opportunities to exploit or constraints to work around. There's nothing else to it. And that suggests that what they're doing is not exercising collective agency. But if you buy that, you're really close to seeing that Bratman's view must be wrong. Here are Beatrice and Baldrick. Their situation is as similar as possible to that of Aisha and Ahmed, except for one tiny twist. As things happen, at the start of at the start of the session, Beatrice, Beatrice's objective is to make the ball hit the square, and Baldrick's objective is also to make the ball hit the square. Now Beatrice reasons in just the way that Aisha does. We try to make Beatrice as similar as Aisha to Aisha as possible. This means in particular that Beatrice will make use of facts about what Ahmed intends, but she won't make use of the fact that what Ahmed intends is what she intends in her reasoning. So she makes use of the fact, sorry, that Beatrice and Baldrick. Beatrice makes use of the fact that Baldrick intends that the ball hit the 
red square. What she doesn't do is make use of the fact that what Baldrick intends is what she, Beatrice, intends. Now I think we have a case where we have met the conditions that Brackman offers as sufficient for shared intention. It's not just that Beatrice and Baldrick each have an intention in favour of the collective action. They also intend that the collective action occur because of and in accordance with each other's intentions. And all of this is common knowledge. But at the same time, we shouldn't think of what Beatrice and Baldrick are doing as an exercise of collective agency, unless we're prepared to say the same about Aisha and Ahmed. After all, from Beatrice's point of view, things are much as they are from Aisha's point of view. Both Aisha and Beatrice see the other's actions merely as opportunities to exploit and constraints to work around. So the idea that there is an exercise of collective agency here is just not very plausible. So this tells us that unfortunately our second attempt to characterize collective intention has also failed. We can't characterize collective intention just as a matter of each of the agents having an intention in favor of a collective action. And nor, perhaps unsurprisingly, does it help to go up the hierarchy and suppose that the agents have to have intentions in favor of others' intentions in favor of a collective action. That move just doesn't work. So we still have a problem saying what collective intention could be. To make progress here, I think it's useful to think first about what went wrong with Beatrice and Baldrick. Part of the problem, I think, is this. From the agent's own point of view, there is no collective agency. If we want to suppose that Beatrice and Baldrick are engaged in some kind of uh, exercise of collective agency, that might be fine. But from Beatrice's point of view, things are just like they are from Aisha's point of view. What we need to capture collective agency is the idea that when an agent exercises collective agency, it is from her point of view as if she's exercising collective agency. But we want a way of capturing that idea without going in such a tight circle, without appealing to collective agency twice in that way. It's just here that I think it's useful to appeal to the notion of parallel planning. So I want, to, I want now to introduce the notion of parallel planning by contrasting it with the notion of interconnected planning. So on a standard view, Michael Bratman's about collective agency, collective agency consists at bottom in interconnected planning. That's to say, planning in which facts about my plans feature in your plans, and facts about your plans feature in my plans. So if you and I decided that we would move the lectern out of this room, for us to have interconnected plans would be for my plans to feature not just the lectern and its weight and its position in relation to the door, but also facts about your plans and conversely. This is interconnected planning. I think what we need to understand collective agency is not interconnected planning, but parallel planning. Planning in which when we are, for example, moving the lectern out of the room, you plan my actions as well as yours, and I make a plan which encompasses your actions as well as mine. So we each have a plan for both of our actions. Now on the face of it, the notion of parallel planning can easily seem incoherent. It can easily seem 
incoherent because it's hard to understand how, without irrationality or ignorance, you can make a plan partly for my actions when you don't in fact control my actions and when I don't control yours conversely. But there is a kind of planning which is agent neutral. That's to say it's a kind of planning which doesn't involve specifying any particular agent or agents. This kind of planning is quite common at the early stages of some activities. So let's suppose just for a moment that you and I are housemates and we've just decided to make a pizza. We might then sit down to plan the construction of this pizza, dividing the activity into various subplans. So we need plan for the toppings, for the dough, for some salad, some beer, and, and some seasoning and so on. We make this plan without yet specifying who will take on which roles in the plan. Indeed, we might get all the way through the planning process before we assign roles to any particular agents. And of course, agent-neutral planning for multiple agents' actions can also rationally and without ignorance occur in isolation. So you could also imagine that we decide to make the pizza, but at this point we have to leave from work, and we're now unable to communicate to e with each other until tonight. But we're also aware that if we don't do anything in the intervening time, the pizza won't get made. In this situation, we might reasonably set back and think to ourselves, how should agents in our situation construct the pizza? form the pizza plan, work out whether there's an obvious way of assigning roles. If there's an obviously best way of assigning roles, we might then take on roles that are assigned to us in that role assignment and do some of the work in advance. So there's nothing incoherent about the notion of parallel planning, about the idea that you might plan my actions and I yours, as long as we construe that planning as agent neutral. But still, I'm suggesting that parallel planning might be relevant to understanding collective agency. But still you might think, well, how could this parallel planning enable for the coordination of our actions? How could we, through each planning the other agent's actions, achieve coordination? To answer that challenge, I want first of all to think about an ordinary individual action. So here's a glass, and I move this glass from one place to another, passing it between my hands as I go. So here's a, an action involving my two hands. So this action plausibly involves working out from, uh, from a relatively distal outcome, distal with respect to the means-end relation, the movement of the glass from one place to another, plausibly involves working out in a series of increasing detail steps that will enable me to realize that outcome. But the other thing about that action is that it requires fairly tight coordination in space and time. If the action is to be fluid, the object has to, the two hands have to meet at roughly the same place at roughly the same time. And the release has to occur just slightly before the grasp. If we ask how is that achieved, how is the coordination between, in the single agent, the two hands achieved, at least part of the answer, the simple part of the answer is, look, the plan for this hand and the plan for that hand are not two entirely separate plans. Rather, they are components of a single larger plan. One of the functions of anything which counts as a planning process is precisely to achieve meshing between subplans. Planning processes have, if you like, two dimensions. There's the derivation of means from outcomes, means to realize the outcomes, 
vertically, and then there's horizontally the achievement of subplans which mesh with each other so that the two hands meet in the middle at the same time. So now think about what happens if we did a two-person two version of the same action. So once again, we move the glass from one place to another. But now instead of me passing it between my two hands, I start with my right hand, and you take it up with your left hand and place it down. So now we've got the same goal once again, the movement of the glass from one place to another. We've got a very similar timing problem. Our hands have to meet in the same time and the same place. And if we engage in parallel planning, We've also got very much the same planning, in the sense that I plan the action almost as if it was entirely me who was performing it, and you plan the action almost as if it was entirely you who was performing it. This could help us to coordinate our actions, providing that our planning abilities are relevantly similar and the environment sufficiently constraining, that are the plan so that our plans are the same or at least similar enough that differences don't matter. Because in that case, with you planning the whole action, your plan for your action is constrained by your plan for my action. But because our plans match, that means that your plan for your action is indirectly constrained by my plan for my action. Because your plan for my action is my plan for my action. So the thought is this, that parallel planning is a way in which agents can achieve coordination between their actions, not by thinking about each other's plans, but more simply perhaps by planning their actions. Parallel planning, you achieve coordination merely by planning another agent's actions. What then is the difference between the collective action case, where we perform the action together, and the individual case? Well, I guess there are two differences. One is that where there's, where there's parallel planning for collective action, we need to selectively prevent parts of the planning process from actually resulting in action. Parts of the things we plan do have to result in us acting, but parts of those planning processes need to stop before, some point before, perhaps well before, they actually result in action. The other thing, of course, is that in the case of collective action with parallel planning, we now have two plans, not just one. We have my plan and your plan. And so, of course, those two plans have to match. They have to be identical, or at least sufficiently similar, that differences don't matter to the coordination between us. And it's just at this point that you might think, well, that requirement of matching plans shows that we haven't really made any progress at all. We're back to the idea that we have to think about each other's plans and intentions, in order to achieve matching between the plans. But I think that that objection is just too early, too pessimistic, because it might well be that matching of plans in many simple cases, in a limited range of simple but useful cases, matching might be achieved because of the kind of planning systems that we have, together with environmental constraints. So to change the example, if two agents who are reasonably similar are confronted with the job of moving a table out of a room and positioned thus, it could easily be that given the way the environment is and their planning abilities, there is a single most obvious way to each of them to perform this action, so that the matching of their plans is guaranteed not by any reflection on the particular intentions that the other agent has, but just on the way the environment works.
Now, of course, there's no guarantee that that will be the case. So we could imagine the agent set up diagonally opposite corners of the table. And in this case, there's now no longer a possibility of straightforwardly engaging in parallel planning because there isn't a unique, obvious, best plan. In situations like this, the agents either need to move around to communicate or to form some other more complex kind of intentions before they can proceed. So the point isn't that parallel planning will always automatically result in matching plans. The thought is just that in a limited but useful range of simple situations, we can achieve matching plans in parallel planning just thanks to constraints on the sorts of planning we engage in, together with facts about our environment, without thinking in detail about other agents' intentions and plans. So I've been suggesting that we can distinguish interconnected planning from parallel planning, and the promise was that reflection on parallel planning might help us to understand something about collective agency. But so far all I've suggested is something much weaker, namely that parallel planning might be a way in some situations for us to achieve coordination in our actions. Why well, think that this has anything at all to do with collective agency? To see why that might be, I want to draw a distinction between the perspective involved in planning an action and the perspective involved in merely predicting actions. One way to get a fix on this distinction is to note that planning is primarily about how an agent might rationally achieve certain ends, whereas prediction is primarily concerned with what other agents will do. So planning is an instance of practical reasoning, whereas merely predicting is theoretical reasoning. Roughly speaking, planning actions involves taking the perspective of an agent, or the perspective that an agent paradigmatically has with respect to her own actions, whereas merely predicting another agent's actions involves taking the perspective of an observer on them. So the thought is this, parallel planning matters because making a single plan for all of our actions, yours and mine, involves taking the kind of perspective that an agent typically has on our own actions, that is, conceiving of all of these actions as elements in a single plan. But why does that matter? Well. Let's go back to an individual case, so forget about collective agency for a moment. Just imagine someone who's committed to keeping two areas of her life entirely separate. So she has her home life over here and her work life over there. And as a matter of policy, she refuses ever to engage in planning, which involves overlapping these two areas of her life. When she's planning her work life, she makes predictions about her home life to guide her, she recognises that going to the party tonight will leave her in no fit state to be at the conference for nine o'clock in the morning. But that's a prediction about her home life, not part of a plan. Conversely, when she's planning her home life, she makes only predictions about what will happen in her work life. This person, who systematically avoids having a plan overlapping two parts of her life, is, might describe herself as almost as if she were living two separate lives. There's a sense in which the actions that make up her life fail to have a kind of practical unity. They fail to have a kind of practical unity because she never takes the planning, the planning perspective that encompasses events from both parts of her life. She's always occupying the perspective of an outsider with respect to part of her life. The thought is that this extends to 
This, this same thing extends to other agents' actions. When you and I, moving the lectern through the door, engage in parallel planning, when you make a plan for both our actions, yours and mine, you occupy a perspective from which it's possible to think of my actions as elements of the same plan that your actions are elements of. And so you conceive of our actions as having a certain kind of practical unity. I'm not suggesting, of course, that you conceive of my actions exactly as if they were your actions. The point is just that there's a sense in which our actions have this, the kind of unity that's not either necessary or sufficient for, but characteristic of the sorts of unity that make up actions in a single agent's life. That's why I think if we look at a third pair, here was Beatrice and Baldrick. What's happening with Beatrice and Baldrick is that Beatrice is planning her own actions, making predictions about Ahmed's actions. Ahmed's actions. So she does have these interlocking intentions, but in this case, the counterexample case, what they don't ever do is think of both of their actions, Beatrice's and Baldrick's, as elements of a single plan. Each of them thinks of the other agent's actions only as opportunities to exploit or constraints to work around. They're conceiving them of outsiders. If we take the last case, Caitlin and Kieran, these engage in parallel planning. So to make it concrete, here's what happens. Caitlin thinks, well, the goal is to make the ball hit the red square, what should, two in, what should two agents in our situation do to bring that about? She makes a plan for this. She realizes that there is one obviously best way for two agents in their situation to do this. She identifies that there's an obviously best way of, of dividing up roles between her and Armin. And then she simply performs the part in that plan which is assigned to her in the optimal role distribution. She does this rationally and without any ignorance. So she's engaged in parallel planning. She, she, Caitlin and Kieran, are each making, sorry, they're each doing the same thing. The situation is symmetric. So they're engaged in parallel planning. My suggestion is that that's sufficient for them to be exercising collective agency. Sufficient for two agents to be exercising collective agency, that they each have an intention in, intention in favor of the collective action, in this case that Caitlin and Kieran each intend that they, Caitlin and Kieran, make the ball hit the red square, and that that intention is realized, at least in part, by means of the agents each making a plan for both of the agents' actions. So the thought is that if we want to make this distinction between collective agency and parallel but merely individual agency, first of all, it's not enough to appeal to intentions about intentions or nesting of intentions or interconnected planning. These things are neither sufficient nor necessary for exercises of collective agency. But what might be sufficient in some cases for exercising collective agency is the combination of an intention in favor of a collective action together with being disposed to realize that intention by engaging in parallel planning. At this point I want though to make two caveats. I don't think that we've made an enormous advance in understanding collective intention. The first reason is that I think that appeal to the idea of parallel planning might give us sufficient conditions for collective agency but is unlikely to give us necessary conditions. That thought is led that I come at that thought partly by thinking about examples like kissing which plausibly involve exercising collective agency, in some cases, 
but not plausibly understood as involving planning, at least not planning in this kind of way. Now that might be wrong, but I think this at least gives us reason to be cautious in saying that we've come up with necessary conditions for exercising collective agency. The other concern here is that I'm not sure that we've really given an account of collective intention. So there is a sort of dogma in the literature that in order to understand collective agency, we need to appeal to a state which stands to collective agency as ordinary intention stands to exercises of ordinary individual agency. We need to introduce something like collective intention. But that's really irrelevant in the way that we've been proceeding, because we've got perfectly ordinary intentions, intentions that we, you and I, perform some collective action together with parallel planning. So there isn't really a distinctive state to be had. Perhaps more substantially, it also seems that we can have exercises of collective agency without any kind of collective intention at all. Now to make this point, I'm in a slightly tricky position. So I've just expressed skepticism about the very idea of collective intention. Maybe we just don't need collective intention. Maybe it's a mistake to think that we need collective intention to understand collective agency. I also have to admit that there are almost as many different accounts of collective intention as there are philosophers who've thought about collective agency. So it's very difficult to say how you could have collective agency without collective intention, because it's very difficult to pin down that notion of collective intention. It's something that arguably doesn't even exist. Fortunately, for my purposes, I think there's almost universal agreement on one small point that will be enough. The small point is that collective intentions, if they exist, are inferentially and normatively integrated with ordinary intentions. Let me illustrate the idea. Suppose that you and I have a collective intention that we go to dinner tonight. But at the same time, I have an ordinary individual intention that I watch the football match tonight. I don't even know if it's football season, you can tell I'm not a football <laughs> anyway. Now, I take it that if I know that I can't do both the dinner and the football match, then it's irrational for me simultaneously to have this collective intention and this ordinary individual intention. And it's irrational for me in almost the same way that it would be irrational for me simultaneously and knowingly to have incompatible ordinary individual intentions. So it seems that on any sane account of collective intention, collective intention should be inferentially and normatively integrated with ordinary intentions. And that assumption about collective intention allows us to show that we can have collective collective agency without collective intention, providing we can think of parallel planning as involving only representations which are more primitive than things like intention and not inferentially integrated with them. And I think we can see how relatively primitive kinds of action-related representation could underpin parallel planning and therefore collective agency just by thinking about recent developments in the study of motor representation. Motor representations are representations involved in the production of action that have a bodily format and so differ from ordinary intentions, which I take it have propositional contents. Given that motor representations 
essentially involve the body, it might be natural to think that they involve representations only of bodily configurations and mere bodily movements, things like patterns of joint displacement. But interestingly, there's now a very large body of research which shows that it's possible to represent relatively abstract outcomes motorically, outcomes like the grasping of an object or the movement of an object from one place to another, which might be done using an indefinitely large variety of different joint displacements, because it might be done, for example, with different effectors, the hand or the foot, or might be done with different tools. There's also very good evidence that motor processes, the processes in which motor representations feature, involve not just the derivation of ends from representations of outcomes, how do you realize the movement of the object from one to the other, but also involve this kind of horizontal meshing of subplans. So that there are often in performing sequences of actions, like those in moving an object from one place to another, there are often um, kind of relational constraints on the subplans. Motor processes are processes whose function is partly to resolve those relational constraints, to meet the relational constraints, to ensure that they're met. So the example that I gave you earlier involving one person moving an object from one place to another is an example of an action which might be driven by these motor representations. But you might think, well look, this is completely irrelevant because surely motor representations are in some way linked exclusively to your own actions. Right? Motor representations are surely representations that are just linked to your own actions. Well that's right in one sense of course, that's right in the sense that the only body that your motor representations will normally result in movements of is your body. But on the other hand it's wrong in the sense that there's now again a large body of evidence that motor planning for other agents actions so motor processes which are planning-like in the sense that they involve derivation of uh, means from outcomes and reconciliation of subplans, meshing between subplans. Such processes occur in observing other agents act and even in observing other agents perform collective actions. And those processes are not just things that happen to occur in the observer. They're also things that able, enable observers to anticipate the actions of the of the observed agent, that give her a few seconds, put her a few seconds ahead of the actual movements of the observed body. So this by itself is interesting. Motor representations concern not only our own actions, but also sometimes other actions, even though of course we're unable to perform other agents' actions for them. What's more relevant to our case, though, is that in the course of collective action, there is also motor planning-like processes concerning the other agent's actions, even when those actions are complementary. And those motor processes concerning the other agent's actions can inform our own actions, and so enhance rather than interfere with, they can enhance the coordination between us. Now at this point, it's very natural to think, and I suppose a lot of people have thought that what happens in a situation where we're engaged in collective action is that there's a kind of motor planning like process for your own actions and a motor planning like process for the other agent's actions. Information about the other agent's actions, the motor planning for the other agent's actions enables you to make predictions about what the other will do, 
others doing, and so to work around them. But these two things are entirely separate. And that idea might be supported by the observation that in competitive actions, so for example, when one person kicks a ball and the other person then has to dive to catch the ball, in these kind of competitive actions, there is also motor planning in the second agent for the actions of the first agent, which facilitates coordination between the two. But that would be this picture where there's two quite separate planning processes, one for you and one for the other. It's not really quite how it works in cases of collective action. There's actually a distinctive role for motor processes in collective action, because in at least some collective actions, including things like playing piano duets, as well as passing objects, it seems that there is a single outcome that each agent represents motorically. So it's not that they represent, it's not that there are two entirely separate planning processes, they seem to be, these planning processes seem to be children of a single larger planning process. And it seems that, and it seems that in cases of collective action, there is a single motor plan for all of the agent's actions, because the future needs of the other agent will shape the planning of the first agents of another agent's action. So putting all of this evidence together, the thought is that if we buy the idea that for collective agency, it's sufficient that we each have an intention concerning the collective action, and we achieve that intention in part by engaging in parallel planning, by each constructing a plan for both of our actions, then we should also be happy with the idea that collective agency might sometimes be a matter not only of what we intend or what our commitments are, but could also constitutively involve structures of motor representation, just because we can realize parallel planning in the motor system as well as in intentions. Now I don't want to put a lot of weight on some relatively recent and probably quite controversial empirical findings. So you could take this just as an illustration of a feature of the view about parallel planning. The feature is this, whereas on standard views about collective agency, like Bratman's but also many others, where collective agency involves interlocking intentions or interlocking commitments, exercising collective agency will be cognitively and conceptually demanding. And in particular, it re will require insights into the particulars of others' mental states. It re will require knowing things that they know about your intentions concerning their intentions, or it will require knowing things about how their commitments are interdependent with your commitments. If that was your view of collective agency, it would be impossible for you to appeal to collective agency in order to explain something about awareness of other agents' minds and mental lives. That's because the very idea of exercising collective agency already brings with it, already presupposes that you have quite deep insights into other agents' mental lives. But if you think about collective agency as, at least in some cases, a matter of us each making a single plan for all of our actions, then it's not true that collective agency already presupposes that you have deep insights into the mental lives of other agents. That's what's illustrated by this idea that parallel planning can be realized rhetorically. 
And this makes available to you the thought, the idea, the conjecture that exercising collective agency might provide you with a route to knowledge of others' mental lives, might provide you with a way of knowing something about their mental lives, and possibly even a way that wouldn't be available to you if you were merely an observer of their actions. So to illustrate this idea very tentatively, I want to talk about the case of sharing a smile. So here is Lily who is smiling at you. And it's kind of hard to think that you might know something about Lily's emotional state or about another agent's emotional state by engaging in collective, by exercising collective agency, just because you can get so much through mere observation. After all, there are characteristic expressions, characteristic facial expressions of emotion. So you know straight away from the smile that Lily is amused. And also, often enough, the objects of emotion are the causes of those expressions. So if you know just by ordinary causal reasoning what caused Lily to smile, it's often enough the case that you know what it is that's amusing her. If you know that the clown's falling over is what caused Lily to smile, you know that that's the object of her amusement. So it can easily seem that there is no room here at all for the idea that exercising collective agency could give us insight into others' mental lives, at least if that idea is supposed to be linked to knowledge of emotion. But of course what we're forgetting here, what we've put aside for the moment, is that there's more to emotion than the category amusement versus fear and the object this event versus that event. After all, emotions unfold over time. So that the initial jolt of fear as you hear the intruder enter your house downstairs becomes more intense as you hear her moving closer, but then acquires an angry edge as the intruder breaks that vase that your grandmother gave you all those years ago. The emotion unfolds over time. To know just that somebody is afraid, or in this case, amused, and what they're amused by, is not yet to have had any deep insight into their mental lives at all. You might know that much about them while being largely skeptical that they have a mental life in any deep sense at all. So what is it that enables us to know something about the way that others' emotions unfold? I take it that part of the answer is being there with them. Often being there with somebody enables us to know something about how her emotions unfold. But that by itself, of course, is not enough because we all, as humans, have our different histories and characters and those things will very much affect how we respond to the same event. So merely being there by itself doesn't provide us with any grounds at all for making inferences about the ways that another agent's emotions unfold, nor even for supposing that they do have a rich mental life. What I want to suggest is that collective expressions of emotion, like sharing a smile, might provide us with a way of gaining insights into others' emotional lives, and in particular insights into the way that their emotions unfold. So here's my basic picture in the single case. There's some event, a clown falls over, which causes amusement, which causes some expression of amusement, a smile, let's say, which in turn, of course, has an effect on the amusement. So there's a kind of feedback between the expression. Just being in the same situation won't necessarily help because the quality of your amusement and the quality of another person's amusement 
are unlikely to be the same just because you're there. What matters is not just that you're in the same place, but that you are sharing a smile with that person, or that you are crying together, that you are collectively expressing an emotion. So what does that involve? Minimally, I think it involves two things. One is that there is a kind of monitoring of the other person's smile and an interdependence of the smile. So that the way one person's smile continuously affects the way that the other person smiles, and conversely. If you are sharing a smile with someone and they suddenly stop smiling, it's unlikely that you will carry on in just the way that you would if they had carried on smiling before. The other thing is that where you're sharing a smile with someone, their smile is having an effect both on their own amusement and on your amusement, and your smile is doing the same thing. So when you are sharing a smile with someone, you are in this interesting situation of controlling and being controlled by somebody else. Your emotional states are locked together. Being locked together by the collective expression of an emotion means that to a significant extent, the way that your emotion unfolds and the way the other person's emotion unfolds will be the same. And that, of course, is what might put you in a position to know something about the other person's mental life. But at this point, I think we should have an objection. And the objection is, very briefly, nearly there, the objection is that I'm thinking that exercising collective agency might be a way of knowing something about another person's mental life, thinking that because I'm thinking collectively expressing an emotion, for example, smiling together, might be a way of doing that. But of course, when we are sharing a smile, we're not engaged in parallel planning, which was the idea I used to explain collective agency, was the kind of key tool. After all, it's not like when we're engaged in smiling together, when we're sharing a smile, we are each planning two smiles, yours and mine. The situation feels internally quite different. So we can see the sufficient conditions offered earlier for collective agency and not conditions that are going to help us with understanding the case of sharing a smile at all. This is, if anything, a, a kind of an objection to the view that we've seen something deep about collective agency. I think what we need here, though, is just to generalize that account. In the case of sharing a smile, it's true that I'm not planning your smile and my smile. It's not, two, it's not that there are two smiles in view. But there is a single planning process, planning for the smile, which is simultaneously serving two functions. It's enabling me covertly to make predictions about your smile, to model the unfolding of your smile, to track it as it unfolds, and also to smile my smile. And likewise for you. So here we've got a different kind of case. We've got a case where there's a single process which wears two features. It enables predictions of the other as well as acting for the production of one's own thing. So I think what we need to do is to say is to generalize what we said earlier about collective agency. We can give broader conditions for collective agency by recognizing that there are two ways it can arise. One is where we each make a plan for all of our actions. So we occupy a perspective from which your actions and my actions are elements in a single plan and so have a kind of practical unity. The other possibility is that we have a single planning process for a smile that, if you like, wears two faces. The planning process enables us both 
to keep track of the other's smile, to monitor and predict it, but also to smile our own smile. When we're in that situation, it's almost as if, from our point of view, there is a single state of amusement, a state of amusement which is responsible for both of the smilings. So the thought is this. Thinking about collective expressions of emotion, like sharing a smile, forces us to generalize what we said earlier about collective agency, and also provides us with a way of seeing that exercising collective agency could provide us with a way of knowing something about other agents' mental lives, something that we might otherwise, in a particular situation, be unable to know, such as, for example, the way their amusement or their grief unfolds. So in conclusion, the question was, what distinguishes exercises of collective agency from exercises of parallel but merely individual agency? On that question, I've made two suggestions. The first is that we still don't know, and in particular, the leading and best developed attempt to answer that question, Michael Bratman's, doesn't work. I also suggested slightly more positively that fully understanding collective agency will involve appeal to planning in which you and I each make a plan for both of our actions on the grounds that it's parallel planning that enables us to occupy a perspective from which our actions are elements in a single plan and so have the kind of practical unity that's necessary for collective agency. And then the last suggestion just now was that once we recognize that there is a role for parallel planning in explaining collective agency, we also are able to see that exercising collective agency might be a basic way of coming to know things about others' mental lives, and in particular might be a way of coming to know how their emotions unfold. Thank you very much.